ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, present The VC Show with eight-time NBA All-Star Vince Carter and co-host Roz Goldenwoode, who talk all things basketball with some of the biggest names in sports and entertainment. They'll give their unfiltered thoughts on the NBA, and Vince will share stories from his illustrious 22-year career. That's The VC Show. Listen where you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Interviews with actors, comedians, athletes, neuroscientists, authors, anybody I find interesting. We talk about their careers, successes, failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I think I asked some pretty darn good questions, but don't take it from me. Just ask star of screen and stage, Nick Offerman. It's a great question. It's it's an astute question. Um, Gosh, that's a good question. That's a great question. Gosh, uh, that's a great question. That is a great question. This has been a litany of great questions. I was right (laughs) to to agree to this. Hey, I'm Justin Sutherland, and my dilemma right now is the Minnesota Timberwolves. The fact that we have two of the biggest men on the court that need to figure out how to make it work. They do indeed have two big guys. Uh, and I think we were all a little shocked by that trade for Gobert and the move to a supersized front court while the rest of the NBA is trending to smaller lineups. Um, so the best I can tell you is to be patient, as I do think they're going to figure out some of these early issues. Uh, I won't lie to you, though. I, I, I do not see this iteration of the team keeping up with teams like the Warriors or the Bucks. So I think it'll be yet another year of dreaming of one day winning a title in Minnesota. Go Bulls. That's what she said. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Happy November, or at least let's hope so. Because uh, I don't know if y'all are in the same boat, but October kind of sucked hard. Uh, just felt like, I don't know, the planets were aligned, if you believe in that stuff. Uh, or something was up with the auras and the vibes. Because uh, so many of my friends' lives, um, whether it be their jobs or their families or just happiness, seem to get screwed with. Um, in addition, I've been hearing of a lot of people just going through sort of the second version of the thinking that led to the Great Resignation. People who made it through the toughest stretches of COVID, still loving their jobs and their schedules and all of that, just now hitting that wall and starting to wonder if they need a change. Um, So if you're one of them, or if you're like my friends and you wanted to give Mercury or whatever planet was screwing things up the middle finger the last couple of weeks, uh, hang in there. We got this. Uh, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts recently, Smartless, and Jason Bateman said, I find that sometimes courage is on the other side of trying. Now, I think the normal saying is something like courage is on the other side of fear, which is a good one. But I like the twist from Bateman. Um, Just try. Try a new thing. Try a new approach. Try a new place, friend, perspective, job. Um, As we continue to be sort of shaken by the news, rightfully so. Scared by the elections and their potential fallout, rightfully so. Um, Still dealing with COVID and everything that came with it. I'm getting the feeling that holding on too fast to what's always been just might not be the answer anymore. Uh, Whether that's changing your habits to deal better with the news, whether that's considering looking at at your everyday schedule, your job, your communication strategy, whatever it is, and figuring out if a change might be helpful or maybe just more flexibility might be helpful. Uh, This week's guest on the podcast had a forced moment of slowdown and perspective change and intense gratitude 
for just being alive and making it through a nearly deadly boat accident a couple months ago. Justin Sutherland is his name. Top chef and Iron Chef fame is a chef, restaurateur, author, was a competitor on season 16 of Top Chef. That was Top Chef Kentucky, a winner on Iron Chef America. He's a co-host of True TV's Fast Foodies, opened a new breakfast sandwich restaurant called The Big E in Portland, recently with more locations to come. Also the owner of Southern Restaurant Handsome Hog in St. Paul and Noise and Cutler on the Park in Wisconsin. Uh, he's also a judge on Food Network's Kitchen Crash and his first cookbook, Northern Soul, Southern-inspired home cooking in a northern kitchen, came out this summer. So we talk about how he manages to do all of that. Uh, we talk about sort of a circuitous route to success that included a quarter-life crisis, um, a sort of drop everything and start over in Costa Rica moment. Uh, his shut up and dribble moment in Minnesota post George Floyd. Uh, and we talk about surviving and continuing to recover from that terrible accident in July. Hope you enjoy the conversation. That's what she said. So excited to welcome Justin Sutherland on the podcast. Those who are regular listeners know I love having chefs on, but this one's me especially interesting because I need all the goodies on fast foodies, not just Top Chef, not just Iron Chef, but fast foodies, my obsession that I have evangelized uh, on social media. Um, and also what's been a really fascinating and challenging and different year for a very successful chef. So Justin, we got to start at the beginning. Uh, yeah. Minnesota, Apple Valley, Minnesota. Tell me about your grandmothers and how you were raised maybe a little bit differently than the average Minnesotan. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, for a very multicultural background, I've got a, a grandma with roots in Mississippi and, and a grandma from Japan. So, you know, my Japanese grandmother came to this country during the Korean War speaking zero English. And, you know, the only way she could show us her culture and her world was was through food. So, I mean, I was growing up eating eating sushi and tonkatsu and skiaki mm -hmm. and all these things that five-year-old kids were, were not having. That's awesome. Um, did you feel uh, thankful for that at the time? Or was it one of those, you know, your mom's packing weird stuff in your lunch and kids are making fun of it? Oh, no, we were we were extremely thankful. I mean, we wanted to invite all the when we once we found out that nobody else was eating like this, like we wanted everybody to come to grandma's house and eat. That's awesome. I actually love that. That's such a twist on on a lot of the usual experience. And you got an easy bake oven when you were five, I read. So you wanted to be like grandma. Yeah. And, you know, and this is, you know, early 80s. I mean, boys weren't asking for easy bake ovens. So my mm -hmm. dad was like, absolutely not. <laughs> grandma was, you know, <laughs> it ended up under the tree anyway. So grandma made it happen. Your mom worked for an airline. What did your dad do? Uh, you know, my dad's been in the health club industry since for his entire life. He uh, played college football and then opened the first Lifetime Fitness here in Minnesota. And he's been with that company ever since. It was actually my first job. He made me lie on my application because he was running the first club that opened to say I was 16. I was actually 14. <laughs> so I've been I've been working ever since. Yeah, no. Well, no one could accuse you of slacking, man. 14 already on the payroll. Um, so college football player. Did you grow up playing sports as well? You know, I did. I mean, I played football and basketball, you know, through mid high school. Uh, didn't take it any farther than that. I actually was a big uh, speech and debate nerd. I was uh 2003 nice. uh speech champion in uh, in poetry if you you know need some fun facts that's amazing actually i mean it does all connect right like your ability to turn being a chef into a a multifaceted personality on television it it obviously stems from that performance yeah. and 
it's good timing for that. We'll get to that later because back in the day, chefs could just cook food. <laughs> and now it's all about being able to cultivate a brand and all of that. Okay, so, but you're not interested in being a chef at the time. You're going to be a lawyer. Absolutely. <sighs> what was it about growing up that made you say, okay, I love my Easy Bake Oven. I love my dad's football stuff, but I want to be a lawyer. You know, food was just a, you know, it was just a thing that we did. It was never going to be a career, especially back then. I mean, this was pre-celebrity chefs. It was, you know, you didn't see the chefs out in the kitchen. It was all about the restaurant. Um, but we grew up watching. Do you remember the show The Practice? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, that was our Wednesday night family tradition. <laughs> we watched it always. And I just was obsessed. I was like, I'm going to be a trial lawyer. This is what I'm going to do. And that's, you know, that's what I studied my whole life until I realized that there was no way I was going to go to six more years of school and be strapped in an office and do research. Like there's, yeah, I would have yeah. killed myself. Yeah. There's a lot of that. I think in chefs in general, there's a pursuit of something and then a realization that the the average day nine to five just isn't a fit. Um, was there a moment that you realized that? I know uh, you, you went to uh, Minnesota state, then you got yeah. a job selling mortgages, presumably to prep for law school and, and wait before applying. And so that was it. It was a cubicle that did you in. It was. It was the mortgage job sitting there doing cold calls and research and selling something I didn't even know what it was or <laughs> believe in. I called my dad and I was like, this is not going to work. So then what happens? What's the next move? Uh, and I called dad and said, you know what, I, I, this office job isn't for me. Um, so he's the one who brought up, he's like, you've always loved food. You love cooking, uh, try culinary school. Why not? You can always, you got your business degree. You can always go back to law school. Uh, so I started searching for culinary schools and, and picked Atlanta because a, I wanted to skip a winter for the first time in my <laughs> life and get somewhere warm. And it's just, you know, I mean, this was, this is when T.I. and Ying Yang twins and I mean, this was like Atlanta was like for the culture, gaming, for the culture <laughs> yeah. at that time. I was like, I want to yeah. go be around some powerful black people and learn and learn about food. Yeah, that's speaking of when you grew up in Minnesota, was there a diversity in the in the in the kids around you or was it mostly found in your own family? Uh no, there was no, I mean, yeah, there we, I was one of, one of less than the fingers that I have. And we all you know, yeah. we joke about it now. And we all, we didn't realize, how, you know, what it was at the time. We were just like, this is what it is. There's only 10 of us and this is life. Um, but yeah, I mean, had a diverse family and, you know, a core group of friends, but there's definitely uh, a lot of whiteness in Minnesota. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Minnesota and Wisconsin, it's like oh. uh, it's like the names all sound exotic and the people are all very similar. Right. Right. Yeah, like, um, there's a meme about that. I'll have to find it. Um, so you moved to Atlanta mm. for culinary school, Le Cordon Bleu. And um, I'd love to hear about that time there. Was it as much about understanding the career that you wanted as suddenly having all of those new cultural connections and a space that felt um, very different from Minnesota? Yeah, it was all that. I mean, it was, you know, it was my first time, you know, moving out of the States to just experiencing something different. It was definitely about the food. I mean, I fell in love with Southern food and Southern cooking, just, you know, being, you know, eating with my grandmother, you know, and just being around all of it. So it was uh, multifaceted and multi-reasoned. When you were in culinary school, what was the big dream? Was it at that point um, just open my own restaurant? Was it cook at a specific place that you that you were idolizing or was it even... Uh, by that point, be on be on TV and be a, a famous celebrity chef. No, I mean at that point there were no no thoughts of being on TV or celebrity chefdom or even anything bigger than just you know mastering a trade. Like I just you know I watched these guys who were so good at what they did, and I was like, I want to I want to be that too. But it was it was nothing past than being a line cook and maybe one day being executive chef of somebody else's restaurant. <laughs> 
Yeah. So did you like the discipline of being a chef or did you push back against that at the beginning? I definitely pushed back a little bit against the beginning. Uh, there was something, you know, kind of enthralling about the discipline, almost that like mili- military brigade style, mm-hmm. you know. So, I mean, there's something about that, but I've never been one for discipline. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the through line on chefs. It's like this weird thing where they have to be like almost uh, like broken like a horse and then set free again. Right. Like, ex- you need to like exactly learn how is. to do it right. And <laughs> yeah. then you can break the rules. But that learning how to do it right part is tough for a lot of folks who are drawn to the field. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What happens before you get your own restaurant? How how much is there moving around to different kinds of um, of food or different kinds of restaurants before you realized what you wanted to open yourself? Yeah, I mean, you know, looking to the Cordon Bleu, someone's, you know, French, classic French culinary trained. I, I spent almost five years in Atlanta just working around some awesome restaurants, just bouncing around doing the mercenary thing. You know, th- then felt it was time to come home. Um, there was one restaurant in Minnesota that I absolutely wanted to work at, which was Meritage, which is is and still is one of the best restaurants in the state and, you know, classic French restaurant. Um, so I tried and failed many times to get in there. And finally, a, a spot <laughs> opened up for the first two years. I think they only let me peel potatoes and and uh, shell peas in the back room. Like I never even touched the line. Yeah. I wanted to wanted to quit <laughs> every day. But I was like, no, this is where you wanted to work and worked myself up from being stuck in the back to the sous chef of, of Russell Klein's uh, restaurant. And then he opened another restaurant that he let me go open. Um, it was kind of my my dream job at the time, and then I then I had my quarter life crisis and I I quit my job. <laughs> I sold all of my stuff uh, and I moved to Costa Rica for a year. Whoa. I didn't, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa! Okay, how old are you at this point? Uh, this has got to be oh, this was eight ish years ago. So I mean, late I mean late twenties. It was, you know, okay, you late twenties. Where are we? Tamarindo, Arenal. Where are we? I mean, everywhere. I, I dropped off in Belize and actually walked all the way down to the Panama Canal and then uh, looped back around and and found a home in Montezuma that I stayed for six months. Montezuma, Santa Teresa, but I I saw all of Costa Rica. Okay. I bought a one. I love ticket. Costa Rica. I, yeah, it's my favorite place. So so what year. what happened? Why the quarter life crisis? You've got the job you want. You're working in the field that you thought you wanted. What was wrong? I mean, it was just, I think it was a culmination of a lot of things. I, I got the job I wanted, but still was, you know, I was working these hundred plus hour weeks. I wasn't getting paid as much as, you know, I thought I should. I broke up with a girlfriend very recently. I got in a pretty Mm. epic car crash. I just wasn't feeling Mm. fulfilled. And at the time, everyone was like, go to Costa Rica. And I bought a one-way ticket and wrote a goodbye letter to my parents and said, I'll be back when I figure my shit out and uh, disappeared. What did your parents make of that? Uh, surprise. I mean, at first it was, at the first they were like, what are you t-? No, absolutely not. But I mean, after it settled in, they were like, good luck, go do what you do. And, uh, you know, don't die. Keep us, <laughs> call us at least once a week. And uh, I, I hope you find what yeah. you're looking for. So they were actually very supportive. 
Well, the nice thing is restaurants will always be waiting um, yeah. and, and the, the jobs will always be there. You have to explain that gap maybe. But so what what was the trigger in Costa Rica to, to come back to the real world? Just there was this moment where I felt, I mean, I wrote the business plan for, for Handsome Hog. That's where I kind of conceived that restaurant. I knew like part of leaving was like, I, I'm where I'm at, but I don't, I have to work for myself and I want to do my own thing. And just, I feel like there was food that wasn't celebrated enough around here and just, you know, there wasn't a lot, you know, being a person of color in the kitchen, we just, it was, there was just not a lot of advancement. And I just was like, I have to figure out how to do this by myself. So I, uh, yeah, wrote, wrote the plan there, kind of conceived handsome hog and a, I ran out of money <laughs> and, and I was going to say, I was like, all right, time to go home and do this. <laughs> okay. So if you ran out of money, that means you get back with this business plan, but you're going to need investors and people to believe in you. What was the pitch? And why did you tell them your restaurant was worth opening and it was going to be different than everything else? Yeah. I mean, a, it was, it was a restaurant spot that I loved. It was a, there was a bar that I used to go to after work all the time. And that's where I had my, my drink, my, my late night snack. And when I came home, it was, it had closed and there was a realtor sign in the window and I was like, Oh, this might be a sign. Um, mm-hmm. So I initially had just went to call the realtor and try and raise some funds. And he had said, you know, the building owner would like to, you know, hear what you want to do with his space. So I went into the office and kind of said, here, this is what it is. And, he was like, do you have the money? I was like, absolutely not. This is step one. And he's like, you want the money? And I was like, absolutely. And he's like, all right, well, you should partner with me on it. I, this sounds great. And Wow. That's serendipitous. Yeah. Wow. And and you felt like you could trust him as both a business partner and a landlord. I mean, <laughs> yes. There weren't people There weren't people beating down your door with cash. So you were like, this one, exactly. this one will work. This one um, will work. Well, it's been open for what, seven or so years now? Yeah, seven years, yeah. Different location though, right? Yeah, I mean, pre-pandemic, we we moved to a larger location, um, actually by accident, but it was the biggest blessing and a curse. Uh, they, they're transforming the building the original Handsome Hog was in into a hotel, um, so they're going to have to temporarily close, and this was two weeks after pandemic shutdown, and mm-hmm. a larger space, you know, less than a mile away came available, and we were at outdoor dining only and 50% capacity and the original hog was 60 seats and, you know, moved to a 270 seat location and would have never made it down there through the pandemic, uh, you know, given the circumstances. So the timing was good. I read a story about you marching, um, in, in Minnesota after George Floyd, um, and just a few weeks after being a part of the streets looking like a completely different place, you're reopening this restaurant in a new location nearby. Um, how do you sort of reconcile that time? I think for a lot of us, it feels like a fog and we all joke like time is a flat circle. Was that two years ago or five years ago? Yeah. But in that moment, you're having to, I mean, the restaurant business, one of the hardest hit of any during that time, you have these expectations for a new location and and for everything that you're working on. Um, how did you deal with the marching and being a part of that sort of racial reckoning in our country while also having to try to keep this business going? You know, honestly, there that that piece became, you know, priority number one. I mean, it was, you know, especially in the restaurant industry, you know, we we always take a, a backseat to to the real world or to and don't even call it politics. Like, you know, just social social issues, w- yeah. social issues, whatever it's like it is. sports. It's like, oh, right. we just want to have a nice meal and not we just want to watch our game. And it's like, well, yeah. the, the people involved are still a part of the country and still exactly. have to deal with all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was that, you know, that shut up and dribble moment. And I was like, no, I want to this, you know, it was an opportunity to 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 draw a line in the sand and say this is something that's important to, you know, I'm a, I'm a person 
not just a, a chef and a business owner. And it was, you know, it was important. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Ooh, linoleum. Linoleum. What a weird word. Okay, so this is from 1860. English inventor Frederick Walton made this up from the Latin linum for flax or linen and oleum, meaning oil, uh, and it intended to indicate linseed oil cloth. So originally it was a preparation of taking solidified linseed oil and coating a canvas to make floor coverings. And it was applied to the flooring material itself after 1878. Uh, interesting fact about that, about uh, the the name and its inventor. So uh, the inventor, Frederick Walton, was unhappy because Michael Nairn and company used the name linoleum. So he brought a lawsuit against them for trademark infringement, but the term hadn't actually been trademarked. So he lost the suit. And the court said that even if it had been registered at a trademark, it was so widely used by then that it had become generic just 14 years after its invention. So considered to be the first product name to become a generic term. So followed by things like trampoline, aspirin, cellophane, videotape, but linoleum, the first one. Pretty cool. Speaking of great words. You gonna learn today. The word of the week is knitterosity. And I hate to ruin your appetite if you're thumbing through Justin's cookbook or maybe admiring photo galleries of his food online while you're listening to this. But what I learned of this word knitterosity, I had to share it because this word means literally belching with the taste of undigested meat. So knitteros from the 1620s means steaming, reeking, resembling the odor of cooked or burnt meat from nidor, which is a steam, fumes, strong smell, aroma. Uh, that has sort of an uncertain origin, but there was a word in Latin that meant who loves the smell of cooking? Nidoricopias. Definitely didn't say that right. Anyway, that meant who loves the smell of cooking. So that might be where Nidor comes from. Um, either way, if you're halfway done with a hot dog and a highly carbonated beer and that swallowed but undigested hot dog meat comes back up, you've suffered a Nidorosity, a beef belch, a meat burp, all of the above. All right, in a sentence, I was, unfortunately, sitting close enough to smell his nitrosity mid-seventh inning. Now let's get back to the interview. Does Iron Chef America come after Handsome Hog, and is that sort of the thing that allows you to, are you found or do you apply? Uh, no, I found, I actually got a phone call uh, when I was in my office at Hog and somebody had called and said, you know, it's a producer from Food Network. We want to know if you want to be an Iron Chef. And I actually thought it was a prank call and hung up on them. I was like, <laughs> fuck you, I got to go into this. I, I hung up and a few minutes later, they called back. They're like, no, this is serious. We've sent some scouts out and they said, you might have something. You want to be an Iron Chef? Wow. Like, yes. <laughs> you don't say no to that. I had no idea no. how it was going <laughs> to, you don't say no, but you don't know how. <laughs> That's incredible. So what was that experience like for you? And was it an instant like, oh, this is this is a space for me. I can do this and be a chef. Or did it take some practice? Uh, no, I mean, it's we practiced so hard for it. I mean, the, my sous chefs at the time, Donald Gonzalez and Brandon Randolph, who I'm still very close, close with. Um, we practiced cooking everything we could as fast as we could for months and just trying to fit. It was more just to like cross things. <laughs> People off just showed list. up with boxes of shit. Yeah, yeah, just like, all right, try this box. <laughs> more, to, more to figure out what we couldn't do. So we were like, all right, don't try this. It's not not able to happen. Um, right. But I don't I barely even remember. Like, I feel like I blacked out and just like the timer started. And <laughs> the next thing I knew, they said we won. And 
It's a pretty classic picture of my face going, what the f- <laughs> Yeah, you won Iron Chef America. Um, I love that you practiced because I always wonder that. And I know on Top Chef, sometimes the contestants will talk about things that they brought or things that they looked up for the area in which the show is going to mm-hmm. be that season. But I like the idea of literally having to to time out some things and say, never try to boil this or do this or right. sous vide this because you're not going to have time. Um, so how long between Iron Chef America and Top Chef? It was pretty quick. I was actually walking out of Iron Chef and and one of the producers tapped me and they're like, good job. You're going to be getting a call pretty soon. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And like wow. two months later, I got a call uh, that said, hey, do you want to be on Top Chef? Um, and that I didn't realize people did apply Same. for or like audition for. I had I had no idea that I just got a phone call and they're like, you're in. Like, so first we got there in the house and everyone's talking about, wow. I had to fly to New York and cook a four course meal for these producers. And I've auditioned, like, I was like, I didn't know that either. You guys had to try out for this. So they, they just called me and told me I was on <laughs> it. Oh, I bet you had a little uh, yeah, X on your back a, after there that. Was yeah. 100% target on, on all of me after I said that. <laughs> Speaking of that, I'm kind of curious for that show because one of the reasons I love it is it has a reality feel to it. It's a competition, but it's really about the food and it's about the relationships in a positive way. They play up some of the drama, but I don't want to watch a lot of drama. The world is enough. Like I watch stuff that makes me feel better. And on that show, is there anything before it starts telling you, you know, um, just focus on the cooking or tr- do they ask you questions to make you mad at other contestants? How much are they trying to spin a little bit of drama? Uh, they're absolutely trying to spin a little bit of drama. Well, we actually were, we had so little bit of drama that that's why they brought brother <laughs> luck in who was on the previous season yeah. uh, to try and Cause <laughs> yeah. we were just getting there. Like this is too kumbaya. Nobody's going to watch this. You guys aren't fighting. You guys are, there's no, <laughs> there's no rivalries. So they actually brought in somebody else to try and hopefully right. stir the house up a bit. Um, but in those interviews, they absolutely yeah. are trying to get you to, you know, they just need that quick soundbite. They just need you to say the one thing that they can right. turn into a storyline. Right. Uh, so, th- yeah, they try. Right. They try. But uh, that was a good. Top Chef Kentucky. Really good, fun season. Um, what was the biggest learning experience for you doing that? Uh, I think you it pushes you to learn what what you're capable of, what you can do. I mean, it's it is the most intense thing I think I've ever done in my life. And everybody always says it's the greatest thing they'd never do again until they call again. And then you say (laughs) yes, but until they um, want you for masters or. Right. (laughs) But yeah, I think you just you learn what your limits are and learn. Yeah, it's, it's cooking, it's personality. It's so much stuff. Um, now that you're a part of the family, it's, it's, it's a life changer, right? I mean, what they, whether that's using you for ads and, and commercials, whether that's bringing you back to judge, whether that's just having this network of people that you now know, it feels like a real pivot point for a lot of people. It definitely is. I mean, you know, there's 15 you know, or so people per season and there's, you know, 20, I mean, there's only 150 people in the you know country or world who have had this experience. I mean, it definitely uh, brings you into a family. And Kristen Kish and Jeremy Ford, who are your co-hosts on my obsessive uh, show, Fast Foodies, neither were on your season, right? So no. that's a that's a meeting of of uh, that were, was brought together by Top Chef, but not because you met on it. Absolutely. I mean, we had done you know events together and met in passing, and just obviously knew of each other. They were both fantastic. Um, they both won their seasons, um, but yeah, that was the first time that we were brought together. How did that come together? Uh, again, it was just a phone call. It said, Hey, we concepted the show, did a quick 
you know, phone pitch. Hey, are you interested? And I was like, this sounds amazing. And then, you know, did the next step with the producers and all of us were, we had individually selected. So whoever did that casting uh, did a phenomenal job because I think that, you know, right. the, the, you guys the way that like lifelong friends, it was the way we matched them I mean, day one, we bugged yeah. and we we're like, all right, let's do this thing. And after that, it was like, we'd known each other forever. That's so cool. Yeah, really good casting. Kristen was on my podcast. I'm obsessed with her. And it was right before the show began. And I think the editing is one of the things that's the most special about it. When you go back and watch the final product, I assume you watch the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you go back and watch, are you also delighted by the choices that they make with the sound effects and the cartoon graphics and all the silly stuff that's added? Because it's a show where you see really amazing food be made and really creative things be done but also it's really silly and it's definitely for people who are high absolutely oh yeah it is definitely <laughs> late night stoner tv and it was to me it was it was the show that we needed at the time I and mean, we we filmed this like during pandemic i mean every I mean just the most ridiculous covid protocols i mean that were necessary at the time but you know people needed lighthearted. i mean they didn't need the heavy competition top chef stuff we needed to see good yeah. food that we love and watch the chefs we love but we needed to smoke a joint and have fun <laughs> Right. Have someone get, you know, shot with a hamburger gun or I guess it was a it was a hot dog gun. Um, gun. I need to hear about the outtakes Uh, who which which uh, of the of the comedian guests uh, resulted in the most footage that could not be put on television. Oh, I mean, Joel McHale always. I mean, he was back (laughs) twice. He's he's become a good friend of all of ours. Um, Yeah, he's ridiculous. I think his his filming day was the line. It was like an 18 hour day. Because they couldn't get what? him to shut up. Because they couldn't get him to shut up. He's <laughs> he's so used to you know being the star of Checks his own out. show against a green screen, and they're like, Joe, Joe, shut up! Like we got a show to make. Yeah. Um, Bo- Bobby Lee definitely had some stuff that could not make the air for sure. <laughs> Pretty sure yeah. Gator rolled I mean, a blunt in the middle of the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's that would be surprised if Gator didn't do that. Yeah. Um, did have you become uh, friends or acquaintances with a handful of them after spending a whole day together? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gata and I have uh, kept in touch. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, we still talk to Joel very, very often. Chris Jericho uh, became became a good. Buddy, oh, that was so. a hilarious one. Yeah. 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 Gata, Um, I mean, Dave, that show alone is like just that that gets you through the pandemic. <laughs> just so absurdity of it all. <laughs> so good. Um, so you you do fast foodies. You do. um. Taste the Nation with True TV as well, which is coming back. The second season just started uh, this month. Tell me about Taste the Culture and how you kind of spun some of the stuff you were already doing with True TV into that show. Uh, Yeah, I think, you know, after working with with the Turner Network and, you know, they kind of came to me and said, what what kind of show do you want to make? And, you know, obviously uh, nobody can do it. You know, Anthony Bourdain did. But, you know, I was like, I I want to travel around. I want to, you know, tell untold stories and, you know, especially in the, in the BIPOC and the, in the female chef and just kind of those untold, untold stories that people don't hear about. And I want to travel, take the spotlight off of me, eat awesome food and and meet awesome people. And they were like, all right, let's do it. Dream job. Dream yeah, job. I can't imagine was. how many companies and networks get the, okay, so it's Anthony Bourdain, but, or Anthony Bourdain <laughs> plus, like it's like every human exactly. being. Cause it's like, what's a better job than that? 
while you're doing all this, you're opening the Big E in Portland, which is going to open up in a handful of other cities uh, coming up soon. Oakland, Nashville, Brooklyn. Um, None of those are Chicago. I'm not sure what's happening here, but I want a restaurant full of just breakfast sandwiches. (laughs) What are we doing? We'll get we'll get to Chicago. 100%. All right. Name me something from the menu of Big E that I can think about uh, that coming to Chicago one day. Uh, I mean, my favorite is the uh, her name is Yoshime. All the sandwiches are named after songs or song lyrics. Um, Flaming Lips is I'm obsessed with. And, you know, it's and also have Japanese influences in a lot. So, you know, it's 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 crab and and bean sprouts and scallions and and soy and and ginger on an egg with a miso aioli. Uh, That's that's probably my favorite sandwich. Um, or, or the, or the of breakfast sandwiches, Amazing. the name, the namesake, uh, cheese, eggs, and Welch's grape after the biggie line. Um, <laughs> nice. it's called, it's all a dream. I mean, it's steak, two fried eggs, American cheese and Welch's grape jelly. And it is fantastic. Wow. That's a hangover treat for sure. That's, that is, uh, that's a saver. Um, Okay, so you're working on the biggie. You've got the the taste the culture stuff. You've got potentially fast foodies that might be coming back. And you've got a cookbook that you're releasing, Northern Soul, Southern Inspired Home Cooking in a Northern Kitchen. How much time went into that? How long did it take you to put that together? And how much stress is it for the first one to be like, these are the things that I want to establish myself with first before I can move on? Yeah, I mean, other than Top Chef, it's probably the second hardest thing I've ever done. You know, it, they it's been, it was about two and a half years. Um, you know, and the publishing company called me right at the restaurant shutdown, beginning of pandemic, and I was like, I'm going to have some time on my hands. This is probably a good time to to right. write a book. Um, that was not true. Uh, I ended <laughs> up, you know, filming fast foodies, starting to taste the culture, starting a restaurant. So those are the busiest, you know, three years of my life. But. Uh, I remember even calling halfway through and being like, can I give the advance back? I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I I'm guess very, the answer very, was no. <laughs> I'm very, very glad I did. Um, it's quite the process, though. Yeah, well, almost three years. Wow. So the cookbook is out now. What's been the best uh, response or what have you been surprised by? Um, I mean, a surprise. I mean, after, you know, those years of just putting all this stuff, you know, when they sent me the first advanced copy and like held it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I wrote a book. Um, and people are going to see this and you start reading through it for, you know, make sure everything's right. But um, it's done surprisingly well. I mean, the, the support from, you know, from the local community nationally. I mean, some of the huge celebrity chefs that uh, endorsed it. So I'm just, you know, very, very surprised and happy with all the support it's gotten. That's awesome. So like you just said, you're 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 literally trying to give back money because that's how busy you are. You have that much going on. And that's when uh, this past July um, you get in the boat accident. So you are boating with friends um, July 3rd. So July 4th weekend. Um, tell me what happened. Yeah, I mean, we always I mean, it's a big weekend. We always it's Minnesota, 15,000 lakes. Everybody has a boat and everybody spends the fourth on the water. Uh, you know, it was the, the epitome of a freak accident, you know, my, my hat blew off in the wind and with no intention of going in to get it, just made a reaching gesture as you naturally would to catch something and, you know, hit a little wake at the same time off balance on one foot, one under and swam back up directly into the propeller and, Mm. uh, life changed drastically at that moment. I think you hear about stuff like that. And I remember seeing it on Instagram from your account, um, a friend or family member posted about it. And first you're so grateful about the recovery and then you wonder about the long lasting effects, but also in that moment, the terror for you and for your friends. Um, what do you actually remember, if anything? 
I mean, surprisingly, I, I mean, I remembered everything that was, they said I was fully conscious the entire time um, until they put me out for surgery. Um, I remember hitting the water. I remember seeing the propeller blade uh, lights went out briefly and then I resurfaced and I remember everything up into getting the accident. And then I have no memory, but they said I was chatty as the EMT report (laughs) says, I kept demanding my cell phone. I kept telling them I was fine and I wanted to go back. It's wild wow. that your body will, your body yeah. and mind and you weren't in pain trauma. Then. I didn't feel a thing. I mean, my face is falling off and there's blood everywhere. And I felt nothing at the time. Wow. Well, and also incredible that you came back up to the, sur- like, were you kicking back to the surface? Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. That sort of instinct to do that even because it was mostly your face and then one arm, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So your friends presumably are, are losing it and bring right. you back onto the boat, call 911. Um, what do they tell you when you come out of surgery? It was, I mean, I, you know, I was under for almost probably three days. Um, oh, wow. And then I remember the first, when I first woke up, I was in the room by myself. I had no idea what was going on. My jaws wired shut. Then I'm strapped to the bed because they don't want me to wake up and freak out and start pulling, you know, tubes out. And still like I, you know, they said you were in an accident and I had no idea the severity of it actually for quite a while. Like I, my mom didn't let me take my cell phone for two weeks. <laughs> she was like, just stay off. And, you know, they didn't give me a mirror for a long time. They just wanted, you know, to settle back into things until they really started explaining how severe it was. Did you ask a lot of questions? I mean, I feel like if it's your face, you're going to be like, what's going on if you're not letting yeah. me see? Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, you're still in kind of this, you know, drugged out phase of, half consciousness. So, well, it sounds like the right move that they gave you some time to just heal and not think about long-term, just get through that initial stuff. So it's been several months now. Um, where are you at in terms of your vision and I, you've been doing liquid, right? Soft foods. Are you back on the hard foods? I'm back hardish foods. I mean, I still can't eat a good steak. I can't do anything, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I, yeah. Soft plus. (laughs) Okay, that's progress at least. What about what about your eye? Um, yeah, I've I've still got to have another surgery over here. I'm at probably at about eighty percent, you know, vision over there. They think it'll continue to come back, um, but there's just a lot of swelling still behind it. They think the pressure is just altering the vision a little bit. Um, my arm will be a while. I've got at least a year or more of oh, really? um, physical therapy on that. That was a pretty pretty serious break and cut by the propeller. So, does uh, it affect your jaw. work right now? What about your jaw? Uh, and yeah, I'll have to have another, my teeth aren't aligned. So I'll either have to have dental work or a jaw surgery. We're hoping the dental oh, wow. will work so I don't have to re-break my jaw. Gosh, that's a lot. That's a lot that you're still dealing with. Yeah, it's, uh, and that, that, you know, that's the, that's the tougher part because you feel, you know, you feel okay, but there's, then you realize there's certain parts that definitely aren't. Yeah. Um, have you had to do the mental side of things in, re- in regards to recovery? And and maybe talk to a therapist or talk to people about patients. Absolutely. You know, I think the patience is the biggest thing, you know, because there's those those small victories, you know, getting out of the hospital, you're like, all right, we're there. And then, you know, be spending a month in bed and then getting out of bed and then starting to start moving around. And, you know, from the, you know, shoulders down, you know, fully intact and your legs feel like you could go run a marathon and then you walk to get the mail and you need to nap for two hours just because you're so exhausted and just, you know, so... It's definitely frustrating, you know, points within the, that and just having to keep yourself in check. And you're like, it's only not even been four months. It's going to be a while. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I have to say when I saw you start getting back out in public um, doing interviews and stuff, I was really impressed that that you were back already and had had recovered so well. I mean, and you cannot tell when when you're looking at you. I mean, what an incredible job from the surgeons. And oh, absolutely. It was I mean, I'm so surprised. You know, and then they, well, they did all the surgery from inside my mouth, which was pretty remarkable. So, I mean, Ooh. I was just scarring all inside my mouth, but they inserted five metal plates in my face and they inserted them all from inside my mouth. So they didn't have to do any additional uh, oh, wow. facial scars. I mean, yeah, modern medicine and the, my surgeon in Regents Hospital, they're absolutely fantastic. That's incredible. I mean, what was your reaction when you did get your phone back and start to recover to the way that the community rallied around you? I saw Guy Fieri did a big charity dinner for you um i was on your gofundme early on and saw all the people on there and gave a little something and i just felt like it was an endless stream of support that you got it, it was incredible and i'm just you know forever grateful i just yeah i think that was part of why my mom didn't let me have my phone she was like nope just keep your mind out of this she wouldn't tell me what was going on out there and then once i once i saw it and realized it i mean it's i still get emotional thinking about it i yeah it's it was pretty pretty incredible yeah. And it, it did force you to slow down a little bit. Um, have you been able to find a silver lining or a gratitude in the, in the forced slowdown or is it more having to just reframe um, your schedule and your demands and, and all of that? No, I mean, I absolutely found a lot of silver linings and I think, you know, experience like that, you know, in, it changes, changes, no matter what it changes you, like not whether it's uh, whether it's good or bad, not everybody gets to go through something like that. I say gets to because nobody should have to. But, you know, I don't think you appreciate or know how much you love life sometimes until you almost lose it. And, you know, not that yeah. anybody should have to come that close. But, you know, it uh, there was definitely some silver linings and, and slowing down was good. Maybe the universe was just, you know, tell me to sit my ass down for a minute. <laughs> so now that you're getting back to things and you're still trying to stay patient and you're still trying to be patient, especially with that arm, which I imagine affects your work. What are you uh, working on right now? Uh, you know, just slowly getting back into the, to the restaurants. I mean, like we're now trying to open a lot of biggies all over the country, starting to get back into my restaurants locally here, trying to get some of the TV shows that we were in the process of filming before this happened back on the calendar. Um, and also trying to going back to taking my time. I think that that book release was happening regardless. And they're like, can you do this book tour? Are you going to be able to be right. active in it? Or are we just going to release the mm -hmm. book? And that was, that was my first kind of like benchmark. Like I've got to be ready for this. I need to. And I'm glad I did. It was fantastic. But it also told me that I wasn't as, as ready as I thought I was. And you know, those three weeks took a lot out of me and I was like, all right, scale it back a little bit, keep healing yeah. and every, everything will still be there. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's a lot of work to put in to feel like you might not be able to to do the work of promoting and all that stuff. So that's that's great that you were able to make that happen. Well, we're hoping and crossing our fingers for fast foodies to come back. We're excited about um, the season two coming out um, of Taste the Culture and all the other stuff that uh, you'll be judging and talking about. I know we'll, we'll see you popping up uh, before we let you go. You do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the okay. Spanish Inquisition speed round. Number one, your current careers are all canceled. What job do you do instead? Oh, it's, I no job. I'm just 
floating on some water somewhere on a boat. <laughs> I'm not working. That's the best answer I've ever gotten. That's definitely not a job, but <laughs> I will allow it. <laughs> um, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, almost dying in July. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That checks out. Uh, number checks three, out. you can be uh, best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Oof. Oh, that's horrible. I don't know. I mean, you could help the Timberwolves. I know. I was going to say, if I could, yeah, I could be the, <laughs> be the third third big man on the Wolves, I'd do that for one there day. <laughs> uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? Uh, not Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> Duh. No shit. Uh, is, is that a good enough answer? <laughs> I would prefer a positive answer as opposed to a negative uh, mm. the, the I mean, affirmative no. person. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I still really want to hang out with Obama. He's been on my, I'd yeah. love to just have, I love to just sit down and have dinner with him or Jay-Z. Agreed. I was, I was watching that Manning cast and I was like, yeah. man, Manning brothers get everything. Yeah. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Like mouth breathing. Like when you just hear Ugh. somebody breathing really loud next to you, I'm like, can you just stop breathing? That's a really good one. <laughs> Is this Ugh, necessary? Yeah. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh my gosh. Um, we were doing our swimming test in, I think I want to say fourth grade and all the kids had to sit around the pool and do a dive and I dove and my swimming trunks fell off and they floated <laughs> up at one end of the pool and my little naked self came to the other side and the entire oh. class was sitting around watching. I've never dove since just to That's amazing. put that out there. You've never dived since. No, I don't think I can't. How about was, a, just a drawstring on your shorts, man? Yeah, but I think I've passed the time in my life to learn a new skill. And I, <laughs> I you just cannonball every time. Yeah, I mean, I don't do a lot of whole. I, I <laughs> glide into water. I don't do a lot of jumping okay. into it. Okay. <laughs> uh, number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Oh, man. I don't know. These gray hairs in the beard I'd love to get rid of, but I think we're going to keep yeah. them. They're distinguished. Just say that's an easy fix. If that's the number one issue, you're good, man. I've been dyeing my hair for years. You don't have right. to. That's an easy one. Uh, number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? Ooh, Prince. Oh, be sick. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? I don't know. I didn't get a lead in a play in high school that I really <laughs> wanted. <and> that... <laughs> what play was it? Uh I don't even remember at this point. I was just, you know what? I, I, I did want to be in the little mermaid. I wanted to be Prince Eric and mm -hmm. no dice. Wow. No dice. That they're lost. Really? They're lost. I was they're on, lost. I was on the chorus as a fish. Uh, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? I mean, fun, uh, kind and resilient. Fun, kind, and resilient. Those are good ones. Uh, well, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, super excited to see what comes next for you. Super excited to check out the cookbook. And when Big E Chicago opens, uh, I will be I will be first in line. That's what she said. <laughs> oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is going to be a place for rants and raves and everything in between. Sometimes I'll complain about something. Sometimes I'll share a story that I read that I thought you should check out. Whatever's on my mind. And of course, after talking to Justin, I urge you to go watch all the old Fast Foodies episodes. Hi or not, they're awesome. Uh, also check out season two of Taste the Culture that just came out. Buy Justin's cookbook. Uh, just beware of the knitterosities if you make that handsome hog burger. Stay aware.
You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you got guest suggestions, dilemmas, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe or follow. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give me a nice review. Maybe you'll end up on the pod. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 